Well, it's really fantastic to see you all this evening, whether you're with us this morning or you've just come this evening. It's really, really great to see you all. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really lovely to share with you God's Word, which is what we're going to do now. So if you've got your Bibles, whether a paper Bible or on a device, I would encourage you to turn it back to John 17, which Paul read to us earlier in our service. And for those who have been with us over the last two weeks, then you will know that we've been looking over a remarkable prayer. We've been listening in to some words spoken by the Lord Jesus at a very significant point in his life. He knows that in hours to come, he'll be arrested and crucified and then rise to glory. And so he prays and we've been listening in. Two weeks ago, we saw that he prays for himself. He prays, Father, glorify me, which at first might sound rather selfish prayer, right? But actually, that means the suffering and death on a cross for him. But that death means, as we saw, glory to the Father and salvation for his people. Then last week, if you were here, we saw what Jesus then prays for those apostles who had already come to know the Lord Jesus and were with him on earth. He was about to leave them behind, if you remember. And it's his will that they should stay on this earth and live within the world. The world, here, it means human beings who are in opposition to God. And so Christian disciples are not to be separated, as it were, from the world, but are to live in the world and yet be distinct from it and to be God's witnesses to the world. That's what we saw last week. Now, in our closing verses of John 17, in this mini-series on what would Jesus pray, we come to a very striking final section of the prayer. And the Lord Jesus is now looking ahead. He knows that the apostles will go out and spread the gospel to all nations. That's his instruction to them. And through their proclamation of the gospel, many will certainly come to believe. And so he says, verse 20, have a look, my prayer is not for them alone. Talking about the apostles who are with him right then. My prayer is also, verse 20, for those who will believe in me through their message. Well, if we're Christians here tonight, then that includes you and me. If you're a Christian, that should get you right up on the edge of your seat. Why do I say that? Well, here is the question. What, at this crucial moment in his life, is Jesus praying for us? As a local church, as a body of believers who have received and put their trust in this apostolic message. What is this Jesus' prayer for us today? Well, one theme you may have gathered as it was being read out earlier comes again and again. Verse 20, he prays that all of them may be one. Again, end of verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. Or verse 23, so that may all be brought into complete unity. At that point, you might immediately think, well, that's a prayer that really hasn't been answered, has it? I mean, think of all the different church denominations in the world today. Now, this is a prayer that we await. 
maybe it will be one day fulfilled when there's one universal organisation, one church like that, perhaps. But actually, may I submit to you all today, look more closely and you will find some surprises, I think. Because, you see, the focus here in these verses is not actually on horizontal unity with one another. There's actually nothing here about institutional structures. There's nothing even about the importance of overcoming the barriers that separate human beings on earth. You know, barriers of race or gender, background and class. Now, don't get me wrong, that is a really, really important concern, and you will certainly find it elsewhere, majored on in other parts of the New Testament. But that's not the focus here. The focus here is actually vertical. That future, believers will enjoy unity with God. And then that unity with God does have, believe you, believe me, huge implications it means that we do have, in fact, a unity with one another. And wonderfully, this prayer has been answered down the ages and throughout the world. As God, through Christ and through the Gospel, has been gathering to himself his one church. Now, certainly, there are huge challenges in living out that oneness. Certainly. But it is already a glorious reality. Just take a look at the people around you, all over the place, all kinds of backgrounds. And yet because of that apostolic message that we have put our trust in, that's been handed down from generation to generation, we are one. It is a glorious reality. We're going to be thinking about church unity tonight, Christian unity, to put it more Specifically, because that is the theme of this last section of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And we're going to think about it under three headings, which I think emerge strongly here. First, the basis of Christian unity, that is belief in the gospel. Second, the nature of Christian unity, that is communion or fellowship with God. And third, the results of Christian unity, witness to the world. So, firstly, the basis of Christian unity. Have a look down with me at verse 20, will you? Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. I pray for them who will believe in me through their message, the apostles' message, literally their word. Now, the word or the message that the apostles proclaimed to others was not something that they invented themselves through their own imagination or genius or through chatbot of some kind. No, it was given to them. We saw last week in verse 8, didn't we? Jesus says, For I gave them the apostles, that is, those he especially set apart to pass on this message to others. I gave them the words, the message that you gave me. And they accepted them. Do you see the chain? Do you see the logic that is going on here? God the Father gave a message, a word to God the Son. Jesus does not, as it were, invent his own message. He is, says John's Gospel, in his own claims, the divine Son of God who proclaims the Word of God. He is the Word. 
So, God the Father gives a word to God the Son, and then the Son gives that same word to the apostles, and then the apostles proclaim it to the world and down the ages. It's that message given by Christ to the apostles that brings people into God's church through faith in Jesus Christ for the gospel message. We sometimes say the words of the Apostles' Creed. We said it a few minutes ago, didn't we? I believe in one holy Catholic or universal or apostolic church. You might have wondered as we read that out loud together, well, what does it mean to be a holy Catholic or universal or apostolic church? What does it mean? And to be honest, this has been a debate and a discussion that's happened for generations, for so many years. Because for some, to be an apostolic church means to be in a succession of ordained ministers who have been ordained by the laying on of hands by special priests, who also happen to be ordained by special bishops who have had hands laid on them, and on and on and on and on it goes in an unbroken chain right back to the original apostles. But of course, that means that any minister who has not been ordained by a certain priest and bishop is therefore not within the apostolic succession. That rules out quite a lot of people, you may have noticed. It includes me and Joseph. And so in this case, Hollywell would not be classified as an apostolic church. But that's not the understanding of the New Testament when it comes to what is apostolic. Yes, it's important to be apostolic, but the apostolic chain or succession is the gospel entrusted by the Father to the Son and from the Son to the apostles, handed down and proclaimed from one generation to the next. And it's through that message of the apostles that we here have fellowship with them and through them with God we enter the one church. Meaning it's possible to be a church with ministers who have been ordained by special bishops and priests that go all the way back to the Apostle Peter somehow, but not actually to have heard the apostolic gospel and entered into that one universal church of God. And of course it's perfectly possible to be in a church that's never even heard of a bishop but preaches the apostolic message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thus enter into this one universal church of God. That classifies Hollywell Church, in case you were wondering. Now, these things, they matter, and they matter because if you've ever wondered what it means to be part of God's one universal church, then you need to understand what is happening in Jesus' prayer in John 17 and what he is saying here. What he is saying in these verses is the true church is where the word of God, the apostolic message is proclaimed because it's through faith in these apostles' message that you and I enter the church, not through communion with a certain pope or anything special like that. And so how does this church come into existence? It's through faith in the gospel. True unity with God comes through conversion. Over the years, there have been various movements that have attempted to form various Christian organisations with the aim of breaking through denominational barriers 
for the sake of mission, outreach. Some of you may be aware of some. Now, while certain movements have been successful in doing so, and have therefore seen a lot of fruit in the UK and abroad, sadly, others have been willing to downgrade what the Bible teaches, all in the name of what they call the greater good, which has resulted in an uncontrollable urge to merge. You may have seen on the news within the Church of England, for example, there's been proposals by bishops and so forth that everyone has to bless same-sex marriages. And you may know many people who do believe the genuine gospel within the Church of England, they're having, they're having heartbreak over this because they don't know what to do. And you may have heard the words of Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Do you know what he said? He says, I'm not going to take sides for the sake of unity. Unfortunately, that's not healthy. You see, his desire is an uncontrollable urge to merge. But that's not the kind of unity the Lord Jesus is talking about here. It might achieve, you know, some kind of organisational unity, but not the deep spiritual unity of which the Lord Jesus prays. I must confess, I've been, in, I've been to some really large gatherings and conferences of Christians, you know, sometimes where everyone belongs to one church denomination. But sadly, there hasn't been a great sense of spiritual unity because there are people who believe in different Gospels. But other times, praise the Lord, where everyone comes from multiple church denominations and backgrounds, but there is a profound sense of oneness Examples that occurred to me and may occur to you, Word Alive. It's a fantastic annual week of great Bible teaching and seminars and fellowship. And there are people who go there from all kinds of churches, but they believe in the one true gospel. I know some of you students here are going to Word Alive in April or so, and I really do pray that you'll not only get great Bible teaching and fellowship with each other, but you will also sense the great oneness and fellowship you have with those Christians up and down the country because you are one because of the same gospel and that will be apparent in your worship together. Word Live is one. Keswick Convention is another one. Or if you've ever been to the Evangelical Ministry Assembly, it's a, it's a little three-day conference for ministers or church leaders. The singing, it's remarkable. It's so good, and I think one of the reasons why it's so nice is because everyone is boldly proclaiming in song the oneness that they have with God and the oneness they have with each other. It's brilliant. People are ministers from all kinds of church backgrounds, but they believe and trust a minister with the same one gospel and therefore belong to the one universal church of God. An astonishing gathering and an amazing sense of unity in Christ because all believed in Christ for the apostolic gospel. So there's the basis of Christian unity, belief in the gospel. But it's not simply an intellectual assent, you know, just tick some kind of doctrinal box on a form. No, it goes much deeper than that. So let's move on to our second heading, the nature of Christian unity, which is communion with God. This is really striking. Have a look down at verse 21. 
Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me. It seems here that glory here is synonymous with word. It's revelation. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one through faith in the gospel. As we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. John Stott, he was a contemporary um, church minister in the 20th century. He once famously described the unity in which the Lord Jesus speaks here as founded on a common truth, that's what we've just been looking at, and a common life, spiritual life, relationship with God. Do you remember verse 3 from two weeks ago? Have a look back at verse 3 of John 17. Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the nature of Christian unity, not just intellectual assent to certain beliefs, but through faith in Jesus, an amazing spiritual life, which is fellowship with God, communion with him. What an extraordinary thought that is. The Apostle John, who wrote this Gospel, he also wrote some letters in the New Testament. And in his first of his letters, he says this. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. John writes this. We proclaim to you, we here is the Apostles, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. I mean, they were the first generation who saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears what Jesus did and said. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship or communion with us. That's what makes us apostolic. And then he goes on, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, belief in the gospel proclaimed by the apostles does not just mean union with them so that we're apostolic. But actually, it also means union or communion with God. And this union of spiritual life is described in very staggering terms. If you know John's Gospel, then you will know Jesus has stressed already through John's Gospel a profound unity between himself and his Father. He goes as far as to say, I and the Father are one. Again, verse 21 of his prayer, Jesus says, You are in me, and I am in you. Talking about the Father. Distinct persons, but bound together in one divine nature. Jesus said, If you see me, you've seen the Father. When I'm working, my Father is working. When you've heard me, then you've heard my Father. These are themes that come again and again and again in John's Gospel. I mean, it's absolute harmony of heart and mind and will. And it's a unity, not just of purpose, but of love. It's a relational unity. There is one God in three persons joined together in a relationship of committed mutual love. 
I recognise that many of us here tonight are Christians, praise the Lord, but not everyone. We're in a room filled, aren't we, with people who have all kinds of different beliefs. But I do take it, I do take it that we all believe in love. So can I ask you a question, a sincere question, where do you think love comes from? Your answer to that question will be very much determined by your worldview. So, for example, if you believe that everything that exists in this world has emerged by accident from a cosmic soup without any guiding hand, just as a result of, you know, as it were, accidental biological processes, then you've got to say that all that is personal in us has emerged from the impersonal, because this impersonality is where it all began. And so our conscience, for example, and our guilt, which we all feel, don't we, that's come from impersonal amorality. Our longings for love, where do they come from? They come from impersonality. That's one possible view. The Bible says something very different. And in my view, something much better. It says that fundamental reality is not impersonal. It is the loving, personal God who from eternity has existed in an amazing relationship of mutual love within the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit in eternal love. That's why the Bible can say, God is love. Not simply God loves, but even before there was anything else in creation, even before the world was made, God is in an eternal relationship of love within the Trinity. He conceived the world in love. He created us in love. He made us in his image, which explains why we human beings are so profoundly relational. We're designed to relate to one another, and yes, to relate to God. Which is why when we turn away from him, there's a sense that something is missing. And the Bible says that we've all turned away from him by nature, and we deserve his judgment for that. But God is so loving that the Father sends the Son who willingly comes to come and seek us, to draw us back into relationship of love with him. And he makes that possible by dying on a cross. As Jesus says in this prayer, he knows what he is about to do, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. That's his mission And it's a mission that he's absolutely determined to fulfill. He makes a vow at the end of his prayer. Look at verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. It's an amazing divine eternal circle of love, isn't it? It's a circle that is open to us. And Jesus came into the world, as it were, to draw us into that circle of eternal divine love, that we may know God and know his love within us. That's what he's praying for. And it's happened. It's happened time and time again down the years. It happened to me when I was 
16. Church left me pretty cold and it felt really foreign to me. I did not grow up in a Christian family. And so church just seemed really, really weird. I just assumed that Christianity, for all its worth, was just all about what I had to do in order to get God into God's good books, you know, and to make myself right with him. And then I heard God's word, the Bible, and I realised I was all, it was all about Christ, who is the revelation of God, and the rescuer who does everything necessary to make it possible for me to be right with God. And I believed it. I put my trust in this amazing gospel and then I knew God. I just knew that God was no longer some kind of distant figure. And so calling him Father felt like an entirely natural thing to do. I remember walking once in the countryside in the village where I grew up as a teenager with a friend, thinking, my father made all this, this beautiful countryside. I knew that I was a sinner but I knew I was completely forgiven and entirely loved by him because Jesus died for me. I knew that. And this is what he's talking about. And anyone who has come to put their trust in Jesus has experienced something of the same. Now, sure, there are times of doubt, aren't there? Times where we lack assurance in the Christian faith. But this is the gift of God to all those who have trusted in Christ. It's the basis of our union, our fellowship with him. Through faith in God, we know God. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And that gives us a sense of unity, fellowship with one another. Which again happened. I mean, you never would have seen me dead with the Christian union before that happened. It was, you know, during the end of my GCSEs and throughout sixth form, as far as I was concerned, they were just people I had nothing in common with. And then I went along. An amazing miracle happened. I found that I loved them. Because we had this union with God in common. I couldn't express it in those terms during that time. But I knew something had changed. I had fellowship with them because that came from my fellowship, my unity with God. Wonderful reality. Strange as it was at the time. And one day, one day we will all enjoy this to the full. And Jesus in verse 24 is praying that God would bring his church, all his church, to the glory that he's going to. In other words, to the fulfilment of the salvation that we might know him fully and enjoy full intimacy with him. And that we might enjoy the union with him to the full that we have already and the union with one another that we have already as well. Now, we need to be honest here. In this world, in this broken world, we won't enjoy all those things to the full now. Sin gets in the way. We don't experience it perfectly. And that, I take, is the reason for the prayer in verse 23, where Jesus prays, verse 23, that they may be brought into complete unity. Sadly, sin, sin it gets in the way of our relationships with one another. You know, we get annoyed with each other. We see the flaws in other people, but often we're not so good at seeing the flaws in our own selves. And that can damage Christian unity, to tell you the truth. 
And so we must be praying, we are praying, as Jesus prayed, Father, please help us at Hollywell to grow, to complete unity with, with him and with one another in our experience, in our lives. It will be hard. It will be hard. The key, by the way, is not to be constantly looking at one another. You know, because we will notice that there are some failings in one another. The key is to be looking up to God. Looking at him. Because the closer we come to him, the closer we come to another. Now, I was going to give you an illustration about bicycles, but Joseph, thank you very much, stole it this morning. I don't know if I mentioned that in passing. Is it God's providence? Whatever. Let me try another one. Again, if you've been around certain church circles, you will know this pretty well. Triangles. Equilateral triangles, to be clear. You've got God at the top. And in this case, if you think of a marriage, you've got the husband here, wife over here. As both of them come closer to God, they are both coming closer to each other. I know there may be a wedding here later this year. That's some free marriage advice. (laughs) But it does apply here. You know, we're all from all kinds of backgrounds, all walks of life. There's an immense and glorious diversity here. But as we all come closer to God in our communion, in our fellowship with him, we will, in naturally, we will, by the grace of God, come closer to one another. The key to coming closer, fulfilling the third part of our vision, is first and foremost coming close to God. And so we need to work at how is our fellowship with God, how is our communion with the living God? Is it healthy? Is it active? Because that is the key for us having a healthy, active, intimate fellowship with one another. The key, as I said, is not to be looking at one another and trying to spot the flaws in other people and get annoyed. The key is to first be looking up to God. So, the basis of Christian unity, belief in the gospel, the nature of Christian unity, communion, or fellowship with God. A fellowship with God that we all share with him. It's personal, it's intimate, it's glorious. Which then also brings us unity, fellowship with one another. And so thirdly, as we finish, the result of Christian unity, which is witness to the world. Now, remember, the world here, you may remember in John's Gospel, is human beings who continue in opposition to God. That's the state we're all in by nature. It's those who haven't put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And God, he is passionately committed to the world. That's why he sent his son, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever might believe in him, trust in him, will not perish but have eternal life. That's why God the Father sends his church, that's why Jesus commissions his people, as it were, the church, into the world. Not just to enjoy God, but to be his witnesses. And here, Jesus' prayer for his church has very much an outward focus. As much as these verses, they talk about enjoying God and enjoying intimate communion and fellowship with him and with one another... There's clearly a concern here, isn't there? Look at these verses, which is God's concern for mission. Look at end of verse 21, for instance. 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Or again, verse 23, I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. You see, Christian behaviour is meant to undergird the Christian message. The message of the apostles, the message about Christ, who he is and what he has come to do. But very sadly, very sadly, so often Christian behaviour undermines the Christian message. Very often, very often, there's so little spiritual life in many churches. This communion with God is just non-existent. It should be magnetic and very obviously different to what the world does and what the world sees. But very sad, there's so little life of that. Now, Albert Camus, the French existential philosopher, he once once said these really, really damning words. Listen to this. The church has offered to introduce us to God. But when we accept the invitation and arrive at the royal palace, we see protocol, business, buildings, plans and programs. But the king is not there. My friends, it gives me a chill that there is so much busyness here at Hollywell as we get going again 2023. With so many activities to run. And it worries me that it's just very easy, isn't it, to organise all these things and actually forget who we are doing it for. We forget to pray. Or if we pray, we do it in a very formulaic or rushed way. And the king is not here if we are not careful. Too often, very little Christian life and very often very little Christian love. But... Don't get me wrong, let's praise God where it is true, yes, there might be true that often Christian behaviour undermines our witness at other times. However, praise God, we've got to say wonderfully, this has been answered. And it's reason why that some of you here are Christians here tonight. Christian life, communion with God, speaks volumes to others, to non-Christians. We're living in such a desperate, needy world today, aren't we? People, they are just so lost. Maybe you can identify with that tonight. You don't know who you are, why you are here, and what you are living for. People are desperate, aren't they, for love or for meaning. But they don't know where to find it. And praise God, in Christ, we know the creator of the universe, not just ourselves. We also know we're absolutely, deeply, abundantly loved. We know where we come from and we know where we are going to. And we know that through all the ups and downs of life, and trust me, there are plenty of downs just as much as there are ups, we know that we are loved and that God is in control and he will never, ever let us go. That should be strikingly obvious that there is something different going on. And sometimes people do notice it. 
In fact, very often I've spoken to many people who aren't Christians and they've told me that the reason why they're here is because that friend at work or on their course at university or in the neighbourhood, on the street, in the estate, they're just something different about him or her or that Christian group of friends. And true Christian love is very striking too. I mean, this was very influential for me in my own Christian journey. I mean, I, you may have heard my story already um, before. You know, I, when my mum and dad divorced when I was 10, I lived as a teenager with my dad. He was a train driver doing lots of shift work and so being partially sighted, not probably wise to leave a 12-year-old on his own in a dark, dingy bungalow on a street full of old pensioners, right? So, what happened is I ended up having breakfast or dinners before or after school with a certain Christian family, or family happened to be Christians, down the street. And I ended up being friends with this guy called David. And I'll tell you, the reason why I was drawn to them, not just because of free meals, but just because of the way they loved each other. The way they would display the beauty of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit. They wouldn't be shoving you know, Bible verses down my throat, although I did ask questions and they would happily answer and respond. But what stuck out to me was just how they treated one another, how they were committed to one another, which came out of their commitment and fellowship with God. And as I was there, eating meal after meal, conversation after conversation, it just was so influential, it struck me again and again that there was something different about them, something different about their love for God, their love for one another, which overflowed in their love for me. And by the grace of God, God used that to bring me along to church, where I discovered there are other people just like them, people I thought I'd have nothing to do with. And yet, because of their love for God and their love for one another, it overflowed as a powerful, powerful witness. It was author Francis Schaeffer. He once said that Christian love is the ultimate and final Christian apologetic. Strong Christian unity and harmony results in a powerful witness to the world. And we need to pray, of course, that God would work out in us the union that we have with him in such a way that it is obvious to others and it overflows into the union that we express with one another. So, some quick points to close by way of application, just to nail the point, okay? First, the vital importance of truth. You know, some people say, love unites, doctrine divides. Let's just forget about all these nasty doctrines and just love each other. I mean, that's Justin Welby through and through, isn't it? But remember, the basis of this Christian unity that we've seen in John 17, and in fact in Psalm 133 and Ephesians 4 we saw this morning, the basis is faith in the apostolic gospel. It's belief with God, trust in God, the truth of who God is, what he is like, what he has done to rescue us. Certainly when you look at the New Testament, there are there are secondary differences that we must not fall out over that come under the category of conscience issues. In the early church, this would include whether you were circumcised or not, or whether you are some kind of you know, foodie of some kind, whether you're a vegan or not. I mean, that still exists today, doesn't it? But whether you ate certain foods or not, 
um, or whether you observe particular holy days or not. Let's not divide over those things, says Paul. But when it came to how to know God and how to live a repentant life in seeking to please him, there can be no agree to disagree over it. In fact, that's a separation issue and a discipline issue. People are teaching what is false or living what is wrong in those kind of areas. And these things come close to home in many UK churches. Today I've already mentioned what's going on in the Church of England. Consider the Baptist Union. There's also similar issues, to be honest, to do with sexuality. People are saying, let's just unite and we can, you know, doctrine divides. Let's downgrade. Let's downplay. Let's just be one. Let's be united and just agree to disagree. But as we've seen, sadly, there have been splits concerning different views of sexuality and morality, for example. But on this, what really matters, according to John 17, is the truth, the core gospel truths. That's what unites the one universal church of God. And so on this particular issue of sexuality and morality, the Bible teaches it's it's not something that we should agree to differ over. It's part of our apostolic inheritance. Unity is founded on truth. So, the vital importance of truth. But second, also, the vital importance of unity. Because, you know, some, they can stress unity, 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 and undermine truth. But there's also the possibility to stress truth, 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 and forget the vital importance of unity. It begins at home. Yes, there will be lots of differences amongst us. But if they're not about the core apostolic gospel, we should just agree to differ. And I praise God for the unity that many of you know that we are in the, you know, that we do have here. I've been here, what, four or five months now, and I do praise the Lord for the unity that we do have. Also, many of you will know that we are in the process of preparing for a major building project, and some of you were at the meeting on Tuesday, and it occurred to me, to be honest, as I was preparing this sermon, that this building project could be a real testing time for our unity, both during the next phase, where we figure out the particular detailed designs, but also during the six months or so when we won't be able to fully utilise all our building facilities and run all our church activities the way that we normally do. So it could be a real test for the strength of our unity. Let's not divide over anything other than the apostolic gospel. If I or Joseph start teaching anything other than that, then we need to be very firm with one another. And it also impacts beyond our own church, actually. And I say that because we are one with other like-minded Christians in other like-minded churches who put their trust in the same gospel. And so we need to be very careful, I think, in how we relate lovingly. Because there might be different expressions, you know, some more liturgical in their worship, some less liturgical, some maybe more free, some more formal, some more charismatic, some less charismatic, some different views on baptism or men and women's ministry, and it goes on and on and on it goes. And as a bit of a heads up, we return to 1 Corinthians 5 next Sunday evening, and guess where we've got to? Chapter 11. Do you know what that's about? 
head coverings. And it's talking about how men and women relate to one another. And then we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts and what that means for us. You know, that could be another testing time concerning our unity with one another. And so let's remember that as we go through that series, we need to be asking God to keep the main thing, the main thing, the apostolic gospel that we all share. That's what it's all about. But we need to remember other churches take different views on a lot of these things. But they are all believing in the same essential gospel, aren't they? They are one with us in Christ. And we need to reflect that, don't we? In how we relate to them and how we speak about them. The vital importance of unity. And then finally, finally, the importance of prayer. Very striking that as Jesus is praying, he knows his Father's will, doesn't he? And he knows that his Father is absolutely faithful and will fulfill his plans, his purposes, his will. And yet, he still prays, doesn't he? Knowing what's going to happen and knowing that God will fulfill his plans, he still prays because God works out his purposes in answer to prayer. And if even the Son of God knew that he needed to pray, how much more should we? We need to be praying. We need to be praying, Father God, please, please make us into a church that practice Psalm 103, the blessing of unity, that practice the unity with God and the unity with one another that comes from it. Father, please may non-believers come into this church and they will see the difference that a genuine unity and fellowship with God and thus a a relationship and fellowship with each other makes. Let's be praying that they will come and our love for God and our unity with one another would be a powerful witness. And that will be a great witness for them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to then become part of the one church of God. Wouldn't that be a great prayer for us? We need to be praying that people will come to Christ. They'll come to Christ through hearing the truth and how we, as a church, as a body of believers, share and unite around the truth. Why don't we pray in some of these things now and then we will sing our final hymn. Father God, we thank you so much for what you've been teaching us over the last three weeks uh, as we've been looking again at our vision of looking up, reaching out, coming closer. And also how John 17, the prayer of Jesus, just hours before he goes to the cross, reflects much of what we are wanting to do as a church. Lord God, we pray that we wouldn't forget what we've been learning from you. We pray, Lord God, what we've been learning, what you've been teaching us, would be a great foundation stone for the rest of this week, this month, this year, and for the rest of this church's existence. We ask, Lord God, that in your Son's precious name, would you please help us demonstrate how much you mean to us 
by showing how much each and every one of us means to one another. We have that great fellowship with you. May that overflow into a great fellowship with one another. And through that, onlookers will see and they will come to know Jesus, whom you sent. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.